There are times we all want to escape from ourselves. Previously, Freddy had been a wizard, an angel, and a knight. Lately, whenever he felt nervous, it seemed best to imagine he was a robot. Next on Selected Shorts, stories about people looking for a way out. Stay with us. I'm Jane Curtin, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Before we get to our stories, let's talk for a moment about literary journals. In a lot of ways, they're the unsung heroes of the American lit scene. Some are long-standing university print publications. Some are online experiments from creative collectives. But no matter the provenance... Journals are an incredible source of the new. Young writers get a chance to see their words in print and readers glimpse fresh talent long before their first story collection. Each season, Selected Shorts partners with a literary journal to discover new voices and hidden story gems. One of the ways I discover new books and authors is through my wonderful theatrical agent who also has an in with a literary agent who happens to find wonderful young authors and passes them on to me, not to mention my daughter who is such an avid reader and consumes words. She lets me know what's going on. So I have two really good sources. That brings us to Plowshares. It's one of the oldest journals out there, and today we celebrate its 50 years in print. Back in 1971, a Harvard Ph.D. student and an Irish expat sat in the Plow and Stars Bar in Cambridge, a place I knew quite well, and determined to create an outlet for new writers. Since that time, it has published prose and poetry from writers who went on to become household names and invited many luminaries to serve as guest editors. With 3,500 scribes and 125 guest editors, there are just too many to list. But here are a few. Raymond Carver, Laurie Moore, Celeste Ng, and Tracy K. Smith. During the live show dedicated to Plowshares, our two hosts were Claire Massoud and James Wood. She's the author of titles including The Emperor's Children and The Burning Girl. He's a New Yorker critic who has also written novels, including Upstate. They also co-edited an edition of Plowshares in 2016. Both talked about their ecstatic early experiences with the journal. Masood found it in school, and Wood found it through Masood while visiting her at Syracuse University. I first discovered Plowshares back in college in the 1980s. I remember reading Italo Calvino and Nagib Mahfouz in the 1985 issue, edited by Stratus Javiaris, and later in the 1987 issue, edited by Derek Walcott, finding a treasury of remarkable poets whose work has accompanied me for all the intervening years. At Syracuse, I distinctly remember, because I visited her three times, I distinctly remember her handing me four or five literary journals with new fiction and new poetry in them and I selected from them the most attractive and accessible which happened to be plowshares and as the upstate snow fell I remember spending the afternoon in that blissful way that doesn't happen much anymore alas just reading I shall always remember that 
That was Claire Massoud and James Wood talking about their early encounters with plowshares. Now let's see if we can touch on that blissful feeling by diving into the journal ourselves. Our first story, with a mathematical title, Y equals MX plus B, is by Andrew Altschul. Altschul is the author of three novels, The Gringa, Lady Lazarus, and Deus Ex Machina, and has won an O. Henry Prize for short story writing. Those who remember their algebra will recognize the story's title as a method to model linear relationships. But Altschul here uses it to explore the act of storytelling and the shape of life itself. Performing it is an actor who has appeared in series including The Americans and Chicago Med, and featured in films including Entangled. This is Peter Mark Kendall reading Y equals MX plus B by Andrew Altschul. This is how the day begins, badly, bleary and bloated and many other B words. There's vomit on the blanket and he's not sure whose, maybe the dog, Barkley. A bottle on the nightstand, a butt in the tray with a dead two-inch ash. The boiler is broken again, the shower bitterly cold. The driveway, blocked. Call a tow truck, and the wait could be hours, but he's got a 10 o'clock call. Take the bus. Left his briefcase at home next to the unopened mail, magazines stacked and letters unread like a time capsule of the last four months. Barely makes it to work on time, babbles his way through the call. Boss, not pleased. Breakfast, forget about it. Oh wait, let's think, let's break it down. A briefcase? Who carries a briefcase in this day and age? Which day, which age? And who is he calling? Is he a salesman, a reporter, a broker? It could be a doctor, though likely not a good one. Booze and cigarettes, that old story. Don't tell me a bad divorce is the source of this squalor. Self-loathing, disappointment, yada, yada, yada. What about poor Barkley? Struggles for the day somehow, stupefied, sick. More coffee than you could shake a stick at. Who is you, and why on earth would you shake a stick? In the afternoon, manages a pretty good spreadsheet. That should take care of the boss for now. Hell, why not add a pie chart, a graph? All systems are go, all grid lines are rising, the x-axis can barely keep up with that other thing. What's it called? Slope. Boy, howdy, we are breaking records. Batting a thousand. Taking no prisoners, says the boss. <laughs> no left, child left behind, our man replies. But in truth, the day is not improving. His own line, flat at best, or declining. There's still a soiled blanket to contend with for those keeping score at home. There's the busted boiler, the bills, the Barkley. Don't worry, there's a dog walker. Our man's not cruel. There are obstacles, tensions, complications galore. Before six, he calls the answering machine. Barkley, you're a good boy, he says to the beep. A good boy, daddy will be home soon. The fiancé calls, says she's worried. 
You just seem so beaten. Don't you like your life? So there's a fiancé, you think. The plot doth thicken. I guess, he says, I thought it would be more. More what? Her question or ours? Back in high school, remember? It didn't look so ad-lib, so experimental. The grown-ups had plans. You picked a direction, set your bearings. There was logic, progression, a satisfying arc. Now we just play defense. Baby, she says, but her voice is breaking. Forgot to charge the battery and the blasted cell phone dead. Back to the bus, a small buzzing in his ears. Figures a trip to the gym might help, endorphins or whatever. Tries the treadmill, the pec deck, and crunches those abs until a stitch digs into his side. He stands up and feels a twinge. Oh, better watch the back, he thinks. Climbs on the stair stepper and trudges up flight after flight. The overhead TV blast scenes of the war, body count shown on a bright graphic. The bars slant up and up. There's been a plane crash in Burundi. No, he is not sure where that is. Another CEO has embezzled. Another actress drowned her baby. The buzzing rings his head. Vibrations pour down his neck and arms. Fatigue. Low blood sugar, maybe, but it is building, some breaking point nearing. On the stepper's display, lights beeping and flashing, a block of indicators, one small bulb burned out, a black hole in a sea of blinking red dots. Whole body abuzz, he peers into that spot and sees, lo and behold, that it's actually a door. What's on the other side? Ooh, wouldn't you like to know? Step after step, the door just gets bigger. The gym's walls are flashing red, blinking, blinking. But our boy stands inside a cool, dark cube, all limbs a-tingle, and his legs are still moving. But the TV, the bikes, everything blacked out. The last thing he thinks as the cube closes over him is back spasms. The thing after that, breakdown. Hey, buddy, are you okay? Faces above, bathed in fluorescence. Buddy, you hurt yourself. Jesus Christ, be more careful. Hands reach down, offer bottles of water. Need some help up? Jeez, you took a tumble. The others return to their bikes, their benches. Someone changes the channel to a sitcom. Stepper blinks calmly. Hello. Hello. Back on your feet. The bus full to bursting, a teenage boy and girl tickle each other, shrieking and bumping into you. An old man with a cane stabs your shoe. Out the window, the black spot follows along lighted streets and dark doorways, the windshield of every car. Remember how safe it felt in that space, how blissful, as though someone were watching you from the other side. Daydreaming, you almost miss your stop. The teenage girl snarls as you push through the brat. Stumble to the sidewalk, shoulders slouched. A beer, you think, with unreasonable glee. A beer and a cigarette, maybe a ball game on TV. But 
the last beer sits open, mostly full on the nightstand, and the cable is on the fritz again. Stack of mail, it's not getting smaller. The blanket, <laughs> no thank you. And poor Barkley needs his walk. Broken, you think, slumped in the kitchen. Bruised, busted. Fiance was right. Another blinking light, answering machine. Here are your messages. The landlord has died. They're selling the building. Get out by the first. Your car is in the impound. They towed it by mistake. Would you like a free subscription? Your brother is filing for divorce. Your hairline is receding. The bank is concerned. Life is not at all what you thought it would be. You are a good boy. Oh, yes, a very, very good boy. Now, hold on just a second. This seems a bit steep. Your story is not working the way it's supposed to. The action has risen all on its own. Nothing you have done has caused any of this. Your character is not destiny, your climax unearned. You've walked the straight and narrow and pushed the boulder without complaint, but those tracks don't lead to the place you are now. Where's the fiancé, the backstory? What about all that mail? What if it doesn't matter? What if the formulas just don't work? The line you've plotted has plunged off the grid and no law binds the scattered points. No equation predicts what comes next. It's chaos, you think, as you grab the dog's leash. You were wrong from the start. Why bother pretending? And the symbol for slope is M, not B. Barclay. Oh, Barclay. How did it get this way? You sit on the hill, petting the pup, searching for the black spot among the park's silk shadows. The night sky is beautiful, chilly and clear, air swollen with jasmine and car exhaust. The city's a miracle of light and geometry laid out like a backdrop under a milky streak. You throw the ball, Barkley brings it back and down and back, down and back, scampering happily through slick, gray grass. Stare at a distant red light. Lean back. Barkley brings the ball once more, drops it at your side, panting hotly in your face. Nudges it with his nose, paws it until it starts to roll. Barks once, tongue lolling, stares expectantly. The ball, still rolling. Barkley's breath, terrible. Suddenly you have to laugh at this display of density, this dumb and unexpected pleasure. Barclay knows best. Sometimes there's no knowing. Things turn for the worst, no one to blame, no preparing. The dog tilts his head, slobbers some more. Somewhere a horn blasts, somewhere breaks squeal. Breathe, listen. Let it go. And how about the ball? Well, nothing can stop it. It's picking up speed, bouncing and bouncing. You and Barkley squint into the shadows, but you've lost its shape on the steep black slope. It's gone for good, believe me, my friend. It's beyond your control, bouncing forever towards its distant, surprising, inevitable end.
Thanks. That was the story Y equals MX plus B by Andrew Altschul, performed by Peter Mark Kendall. I'm Jane Curtin. Because the protagonist in this story feels a bit trapped in his life, I remember a feeling of being trapped. And it was after Saturday Night Live one night, we had done the show, and instead of going down the normal elevator, I thought I'd go down the back elevator because it was a quicker out. So I got on the back elevator and it got stuck between two floors. The doors opened to a mezzanine, but there was no exit. So I could either go on an elevator that didn't operate anymore, or I could stay in the mezzanine and wait for somebody to come by and help me. Somebody did. About an hour and a half later, a maintenance man came in to empty the office's waste baskets, and he saw me sitting there, and he said, What are you doing here? And I said, Waiting for you. So I got unstuck. When we return, a boy who usually imagines himself as a robot begins to imagine his own real life. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Jane Curtin. In the first half of our show, a writer played with form while his character struggled with the formulaic. If you missed it, we're ready to get you caught up. You can find this show and many others on our website, selectedshorts.org. There, you'll find a subscribe to podcast button, as well as links to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. That way, you'll never miss another story, even if you miss the radio show. In this episode, we're celebrating the influential literary journal Plowshares, which celebrated its 50th anniversary in 2021. Our next story is written by Jamel Brinkley, his stories have twice been chosen for the Best American Short Stories, and he will also serve as guest editor for the summer 2022 issue of Plowshares. This piece was published in the journal in spring 2018 and included in Brinkley's debut story collection, A Lucky Man. Reading it is a shorts regular who is known for series including The Americans, Luke Cage, and The Morning Show. This is Karen Pittman, performing Jamel Brinkley's I Happy Am. When Freddie became a robot, 
A special map appeared in his mind. It alerted him to obstacles that told him the fastest way from here to there. One morning, instead of waiting for the elevator, he flew down the dozen flights of stairs, careful to leap over a big puddle of urine on the landing of the fourth floor. Outside, he ducked through the hole in the busted playground's fence. St. Rita's day camp was only a few blocks away, but by the time he arrived, it was already past nine o'clock. The other kids in his group had boarded the van. Sister Pamela stood in front of the day camp, her back pressed against the gate of the squat building. She narrowed her eyes at Freddie and bared her brownish teeth. She'd been making this face at him throughout the summer whenever he was late. But as usual, it wasn't his fault. His mother had forgotten to sign her name. It had taken a long time to wake her up so she could do it. Where's your permission slip? Sister Pamela said. For a moment, he didn't know. He couldn't answer her. She glanced down. Just give it to me. It was right there in his hand, folded in half and crumpled, see-through in one spot from the moisture of his palm. Previously, Freddie had been a wizard, an angel, and a knight. Lately, whenever he felt nervous, it seemed best to imagine he was a robot. He liked the ones he watched on TV best. Sister Pamela held the permission slip away from her and examined it for a long time. Earlier, at the apartment, Freddie's mother had gripped the pen in her trembling fist like a toddler with a crayon. She'd gazed up at him from the couch with her one awakened eye, disappointed again. It seemed that he wasn't the person she dreamed about, whose name she murmured in her sleep. Her signature was worse than the one he begged her to make on the camp registration form months earlier. Little more than a thick, wandering line dragged off the edge of the page. His mother asked him then to call her job to say she wasn't feeling well and would be late again, but he hated her boss's grouchy voice asking all those questions, and there was no time to waste, so he didn't call. In such lonely moments, Freddie wished he had a sibling, a younger brother he could conspire with, her boss around, forcing on him every unpleasant task. Well... Sister Pamela finally said, get in the van. There was an open seat next to Santos because the other kids avoided him. They said he had bad breath, that the little rat tail on his otherwise shorn head made him look dirty, but Freddie didn't agree. He liked the fuzzy nub of braided hair and even wanted one himself. And he thought Santos's breath smelled good. It was richly sweet, like the bruised peaches his mother sometimes got for free at Seatown from the old man who said he was in love with her. Santos began imitating Sister Pamela. What an old bitch, he whispered, because they were sitting near the front. Freddie laughed. You can't talk that way about her. She just a wrinkled up raisin wrapped in a sheet. Freddie didn't like it when Santos said such things. Before she got sick, Aunt Ava had been thinking about becoming a nun. What do you think the pool will be like? 
Freddie said, and the house. And what will they make on the grill? The food's always great, Santos said. Burgers, hot dogs, whatever you want. There's even steak. You can get seconds, no problem. Thirds, too. His know-it-all tone annoyed Freddie, but he smiled anyway. He'd been looking forward to the trip, imagining it for many weeks. This was his first summer with the camp, his friend's third. The Sisters of the Missionary of Charity ran St. Rita's, and a few times every summer they'd take a van out to the suburbs in New Jersey or Connecticut or Westchester where some friendly white people would welcome the city kids into their house. It must have been their way to feel closer to God, or at least to Mother Teresa. She'd started the missionary. Last summer, she had come to visit the Bronx. Even Freddie's mother had gone to see her. It had been important for her to spot Mother Teresa with her own eyes, as if that would improve things for her younger sister, Ava. The house is great, too, Santos said. Really freaking big. How big, Freddie said, though he had asked this question before. Santos grinned. Wait till you see. I know. Liar. Yo, mom. Freddie sucked his teeth. How could you know? I do know. I heard Sister Spamela say we're going to Scarsdale. I've been there before, Santos said. Twice, he added, holding two fingers up in Freddie's face. If it's Scarsdale, it's a Johnson's house. We always go there. Freddie had pictured the Johnson's house before, and now he imagined it in more detail. As the van made its way out of the city, he saw the house's open garage, like the ones on TV. Inside, two cars were parked side by side, their hoods shiny in the sun. The lines of bushes leading him to the front door were shaped like animals. A squat baby elephant, two fat pigeons, a panda lying on its back. The house was white, it was true, with blue shutters and roofing, but different kinds of white existed. And this one was special, like a patch of new snow. The path out from the back door, made of weird pale stone, felt warm on the soles of his feet. He and the other kids fit easily into the pool. It could have fit almost twice as many of them. At lunchtime, they all sat under an outdoor shelter, like a little house itself, and its roof and the trees protected them from the sun and from summer rain. They breathed in the smoke of meats grilled over charcoal. Then they ate tender slices of steak and laughed, and their laughter was even louder and more relaxed than the sounds they were making on the van as it sped away from the city. And through it all, Mrs. Johnson floated around them like a spirit, a gentler sort than he knew in his world, her hair gold like the walls of the basement, her face softened by a smile. But the house they arrived at wasn't white and blue. The place was painted a dull, yellowish brown, the color of old ginger cookies. Santos cursed when the van stopped. Sister Pamela turned and gave him a harsh, but brief look. She also seemed concerned about where they were. Freddie told himself not to worry. 
For a robot, there was no such thing as an unwanted surprise. This is it, Driver said, scratching underneath the brim of his cap. After a heavy breath, Sister Pamela told the boys to sit tight, then got out and shuffled between the ugly hedges toward the house. Before she got there, a woman emerged from behind the front door. Freddie knew right away that the woman couldn't be Mrs. Johnson, but he wasn't aware until she appeared that he had still been holding out hope. Against the protests of the driver, the boys slid open the heavy door and poured out of the van. Freddie moved away from everyone's groans and whispered complaints closer to the house so he could hear what Sister Pamela and the woman were saying. The woman was black, no different from him. Her skin was the same dark shade as his. She didn't seem like a maid or anyone else who would work in a big house in the suburbs. She looked older than his mom, but healthier, and wore a dark floral printed robe that went down only to the middle of her broad thighs. Her shoulder length hair had been set and curled in a fancy way. It shone like hair he had seen in TV commercials, much nicer than his mother's had looked in a long time. Otherwise, she could have been one of his neighbors in the South Bronx. Freddie got even closer to the house. Ain't no mistake here, sister, the woman said. She was loud, like his neighbors, too. In response, the comments of the boys behind him rose above whispering. Sister Pamela looked back at them sternly before she resumed the conversation asking about the man of the house. The woman nodded and said, but he's away on business. He goes away on business a lot. Then Sister Pamela mentioned the Johnsons. Yeah, just like you say, him and the Johnsons go to the same church. Your husband, you mean? Sister Pamela said, her voice rising. What are you asking? the woman cried. Hey, I got religion too, sister. She leaned to the side and stretched her neck to look at Freddie and the others. Anyway, these boys here, she said, they might as well be my own sons. Before letting them inside, the woman lined up the boys, shoulder to shoulder. My name is Arlene, she told the boys. But if you want, you could call me Mrs. Clinksdale. The inside of the house was like a bigger version of the apartment where Freddie lived. Couches covered in plastic, a Bible on the coffee table, a big wooden spoon and fork hung side by side on a kitchen wall. The boys took turns with the bathroom on the first floor. As Freddie waited, Sister Pamela stared at an image on the wall. He was the last to go in and change his clothes. On the rim of the tub, he found bottles of the same pink lotion his mother used to moisturize her hair. Back in the living room, he stood alone, fidgeting in his swim trunks. He held his elbows tightly. He'd had similar feelings at home. The other boys were already out by the pool. With his telescope vision, Freddie could see them through the sliding glass door. He felt reluctant to join them and further ruin the picture he still held in his mind, but he didn't like the sensation of having driven an hour from home only to arrive at a bigger version of the same place. Before he went outside, he told himself, 
there's still a chance it could all turn out great. But the pool was small, a plain rectangle of cloudy water, and it didn't have a slide or diving board. Between the pool and the house, dingy umbrellas on rusted white poles shaded a few circular tables. Sister Pamela sat at one of them with her hand pressed to her mouth. She yelled for order once in a while, but no one paid her much attention. Arlene stood behind her and smiled at the boys in the pool, a hand resting on the left hip of her avocado-shaped body. All right, everybody, she announced. I'm about to get these burgers and dogs on the grill. What? A few boys said. They looked at each other in confusion and then fixed their pleading faces on Sister Pamela. It seemed this wasn't how things normally went. You know, Sister Pamela said, we arrived at your home only a short while ago. Well, my fault for not having the grub ready when y'all got here, Arlene said. But it's uh, 10.30, Mrs. Clinksdale. Not even that. Who you telling? I know. We get peckish around here if we don't have lunch by 11. Have you seen how skinny these pups are? Look like they haven't had a decent meal in weeks. Can't have that. Not in my house anyway. She went into the house and brought out two pitchers of lemonade. Next came uncooked hot dogs and fat-laden patties of beef on an aluminum tray. A few yards from the two tables stood a small grill. It looked cheap and was hidden by a low-hanging tree branch and a tall growth of hairy-looking plants. Arlene, humming with pleasure, began to cook, but the backyard didn't fill with the flavor of fragrant smoke. Freddie hardly ate the sides of mustardy potato salad and microwaved kernels of frozen corn. He didn't even like steak, but felt disappointed that there wasn't any. The boys were done with their food before 11.30, but Arlene said they should wait an hour or else they'd get cramps. Sister Pamela pressed her lips together and then said she was certain that was a myth. Can't take chances, Arlene said. The boys remained around the table for that hour, not even snacking from the bowls of greasy potato chips, afraid of extending their forced idle time. After the hour was up, most of the boys began playing again. But Freddie wasn't interested. He drank a glass of the tart lemonade and then walked around to the far edge of the pool where he crouched and slid his hand into the water. It was lukewarm, like used bath water, and smelled strongly of chlorine. Santos waded over, pushed himself up, and sat next to him. He lifted his goggles onto his forehead and slowly kicked underwater. This sucks, he said. <laughs> Freddie didn't want to admit it, but it was true. Those hot dogs, the worst. The burgers too, everything. And the pool, the deep end don't even go past my chin. What kind of deep end is that? Nothing's what it's supposed to be like. Sucks. Santos replied. He kicked faster, his feet breaking the water's skin. How did this even happen? Santos shrugged. Don't ask me. You said it was a big white house. You said there was a slide in a garden and animals in the bushes. Animals? What are you even talking about? You told me, Freddie said. I heard her say Scarsdale. Scarsdale always means the Johnsons. 
Freddy glared. Why'd I even listen to you? Me? It's not my fault. There probably isn't even a real Mrs. Johnson. There are millions of Mrs. Johnsons, Santos said. They only brought us here so you wouldn't get all excited and jumpy and piss yourself like a baby. Don't call me a baby. You are a baby. Your mother stopped raising you as soon as you were born. Everybody says so. Liar? Call me a liar again, Santos dared. Freddie curled his shaking hands into fists. They felt solid, heavy, and strong. You're a liar, and you smell like garbage. And that's why nobody else ever hangs out with you. Fear made him hit Santos then, as if this act would somehow erase the startling violence of his words. But smashing a fist into the side of Santos's head didn't help the way Freddy had hoped. Instead, he found himself tangled up with his friend, arms and legs knotted and flailing as they both fell into the pool. A rush of warm water poured into his mouth and it tasted like bleach. Santos elbowed him in the stomach and Freddy's eyes flew open to the murk of the water, ribboned with gray-green strands. Santos kicked wildly to right himself, forcing Freddy to inhale more water and open his eyes even wider so that he saw the shadow and substance of the other boys in the pool. When he felt other hands on him, he reached his toes for the bottom. His head broke the surface and he found himself gasping and spitting where he stood, with shouts swirling around him, his stung eyes attempting to blink away the world. Arlene had pulled him from the pool. With a towel wrapped around her still wet body, she listened as Sister Pamela scolded them, then interrupted and ordered the boys to shake hands. Santos seemed sincere when he said sorry, but Freddie didn't even make eye contact while muttering his apology. He didn't so much shake the offered hand as nudge it away. Well, forget you then, Santos said. Arlene got upset. She started to scold them much worse than Sister Pamela had, then stopped and touched her face. She shook her head slowly and mumbled that she was feeling dizzy. After a moment, she said, maybe I should lie down for a while, and went inside the house. Sister Pamela said the boy's punishment was to sit for the rest of the afternoon at two different tables and watch the others at play. She perched herself on a chair between them to prevent any more fighting. When Sister Pamela wasn't looking, Santos caught Freddie's attention and silently imitated an ugly, sobbing child. Freddie drank more lemonade, kept his gaze fixed on the sweating glass as the crescents of ice within it melted. What Santos had said about Freddie's mother wasn't true. She'd been good at raising him once at least as good as the white mothers he saw on TV, the ones who made steak for dinner on Friday nights. When he was a smaller boy, she taught him that the world was a huge bear, but that you could beat it if you imagined you were bigger than you really were. She would tell him you could always do more than you thought you could. And she lived that way. 
finding money to pay for things that they needed when it appeared impossible, helping distant cousins and aunts and even neighbors sometimes when it seemed she wouldn't even be able to provide for the two of them. But that was before Ava, his mother's sister and only real friend, got so sick when Freddie's mother told him Aunt Ava probably wouldn't get better, that this was one of life's meanest bears. She hadn't yet lost her attitude about being strong in the world. She brought him along one day, less than two months before the funeral would be held. When they arrived, he was scared by how thin Aunt Ava was, by the shadows and hollows that had replaced the fleshy sections of her face. Freddie's mother looked scared too, as if this face and this body weren't at all the ones she had seen the previous time. That visit in that room would form the first of Freddie's many memories of his mother crying, shaking as if very cold. And during the train ride back to the city, he kept waiting for her to reshape her lips into a smile. Freddie intended to sit by the pool until it was time to change clothes and leave, but he had to use the bathroom. Kept telling himself the robots didn't have to use a toilet, didn't have to worry about holding it in. Still, the feeling got worse. Unable to endure it any longer, he stood and said he had to go. As he walked toward the house, Sister Pamela watched him with hard eyes, her face taut with frustration, but she didn't try to stop him. And when he came out of the bathroom, he explored the first floor. He searched for anything interesting, something he could show Santos to make him jealous or make him beg to be friends again. Above the couch in the living room, hung the image Sister Pamela had been looking at earlier. It was a framed painting of a brown-skinned man with thick, dark hair and a full beard. A faint light encircled his face, and he gazed gently skyward. It took several moments before Freddie realized that it was supposed to be a painting of Jesus. This was mysterious. He'd seen plenty of these images, one hung in the hallway of his apartment, but never a Jesus who wasn't white. Was a black Jesus different from the other kind? Was he easier to talk to? What kind of person would even have a black Jesus? What else did she have? <laughs> from where he stood, it appeared very dark upstairs, even though it was daytime. In the cartoons and movies, robots could see through walls and across long distances, or sense a body by its heat, or detect the smallest thing that was wrong. Freddie tried to open himself in this way, as he did when his mother locked herself in her room, or stayed out at night a lot later than she said she would. Then came something from upstairs, a small and familiar sound, a cough that was also a moan, a tiny cry. He thought about ignoring it, as he did with such sounds at home. It was close to just going back out by the pool, but what was the big deal? He was already in trouble. He put one foot on the first carpeted stairs and was surprised how easy it was to go up the rest of the way. Freddie crept into a room that made him gasp. It had no furniture, 
and was painted in two clashing colors. The right side was a delicate yellow with an image of a tall white tree on one wall. White paper flowers hung from the branches or fell from them in a pretty pattern. Leaning against this wall was a long, narrow cardboard box, unopened and unmarked. The left side of the room was painted pale green, and it had words in curvy white letters. What shall I call thee? I happy am. Joy is my name. He kept coming back to that second line. He used to make dumb mistakes like that when he was younger, misspelling words or writing them out of order. His mother would help him with his homework back then, correcting his errors before he went to school. But she didn't do that anymore. Since on to Ava's passing, she looked at his notebook the way she looked at everything, including her own reflection, including him with dead eyes. He stared at the two walls for a while and tried to set his mind free to play in the room. He expected the words to rearrange themselves or something amazing to leap from the image of the tree, but nothing happened. It all remained still. He walked around the room, sensing something invisible, but there was only a creepy sensation like feathers all over his body. He peeked into the next room. In it... Arlene was lying on a bed, already facing him in the doorway. Come on, she said. No monsters in here, nothing evil, just me. Her voice was more soft, but less steady than before. It's Freddy, right? He nodded and took shy steps into the dim curtained light. Her head rested on a mass of pillows, her hands folded below her chest. Have you calmed down yet, she said. Freddie nodded. You're a good boy, aren't you? He studied the floor, still feeling the feathers from the other room on his skin. He didn't know if it was good. You like snooping around people's houses? <laughs> Freddie shook his head. At least tell me what you think of it. He thought about what he should say. It's fine. Laughing, she held herself as though she might break into pieces. Sit at the foot of the bed, she told him. And he did. Tell the truth now, child. Would you want to live here? Miss Clinksdale, I... Arlene. I already have a place, he said. We all do. Oh, I, I know that. But if you and your family could trade, it's just me and my mom. Okay. How about if you and your mama could trade for just a little while, like a week? Would you? Freddie shrugged. It's a nice neighborhood, right? Not the very best. But it's nice, yeah. Do the Johnsons live here? Close enough, she said. I heard they have a real nice house. I heard they're real good people. Arlene smiled and slowly nodded. They have a lovely home. I trade for that, he said. She grimaced. 
But Freddie, you ain't even been there. He shrugged again. I don't know. At first he wasn't sure how else to reply, but then he said, I don't want to live in a ghetto no more. Ghetto people live in the ghetto. Arlene's eyes widened until they were the same size, then went back to normal. She made a face like she was thinking hard. Come here, she told him. He stood closer to the head of the bed. The Johnsons? Well, they have these pictures up in their parlor. Shots of all the groups from camps like St. Rita's who have been up to visit and use their pool over the years. So many boys, brown boys, like you, just smiling all big and giving the thumbs up, every one of them, like they were told to. She gave a thumbs up herself. The pictures are in these fancy wood frames and hung right beside the plaques and trophies and awards. The Johnsons show these pictures to all their guests. Did you know that? Sounds nice, Mrs. Clingsdale. My name is Arlene. Freddie frowned. What are you thinking, child? He asked the simplest question he had. What's a parlor? Arlene laughed again and wriggled her toes. Shoot, what is a parlor? <laughs> she said. A room where you keep all the stuff you're mad to show off to certain people, I guess. Something this house don't have. On the night table, face up next to her glasses, lay a photograph in a plastic frame. Arlene was in it, a bit younger and thinner. She smiled in the arms of a man with a mustache, a white man. Was this Mr. Clingstead? Don't worry, Freddie said. You'll get a parlor one day. This is the kind of thing his mother used to say to quiet him as he dozed off at bedtime. Arlene's smile was similar to the one in the photograph. <laughs> I'm 41 years old, she said, as though talking to herself or to someone who wasn't Freddie. 41? There's things I used to want and just don't no more. <laughs> Even some of the things I have now. There's other things I want with all my heart. And if I don't get them soon, I never will. Then she parted her robe, fully exposing her shorts and the top of her bathing suit. Between them rose the little round of her belly. It was slightly larger than the paunch his mother had developed since she started staying out late, but it sat differently on Arlene. Seeing it in the parts of her body not covered by her shorts and bathing suit made Freddie aware of his own near nakedness. He wanted to leave, but he wanted to stay, too. You don't think my baby will like this house? It's a baby, Freddie said. Of course it is, silly. Fifteen weeks of one, anyway. Never made it this far before. Is it a boy or a girl? You know, Arlene said. I was thinking, girl, all this time, but 
Just before you came in here, I decided it could be nice to have a little boy, too. But not if he's going to be fighting like you and Santos. Not if he can't forgive and mean it when he says sorry. He's got to act right and do better. Freddie tilted his head downward. I'll admit it, though, I got plenty of boy names running through my mind. He stared at her belly. Is that man your husband? He asked. Arlene looked at the framed photo on the table as though it was something she had forgotten to put away. He's a person who takes care of me. Or used to. I don't think he wants to anymore. Freddie was still staring at her belly. He wanted to hide his fists between his knees, but he couldn't move. Why don't you touch it? Arlene said. What? Go ahead. <laughs> I can't. Sure you can, she said. I read somewhere it's good luck. Need a lot of luck in this terrible world. Could be there's some kind of way it works the opposite, too. A little luck for you and maybe some for me. Me and my baby. Here, give me your hands. Freddie's hands were so tightly clenched, they trembled and ached. He got closer, hesitating at first, but then gave them to her. In her hands, his fell open. And then she turned them over and placed his palms on her belly. It was softer than he'd expected and warmer. Well, what do you think, she said. He wasn't sure what she meant. All he could think about was his mother, lying half awake on the couch, telling him and the old man with peaches and the rest of the world to wait. What do you think it is? She asked, you tell me, boy or girl? He stared at her belly once more, but it didn't reveal anything to him. Boy or a girl? She asked again. And the question seemed to echo from her, from the bed and out from the room. Freddie's imagination could turn him into an angel or a wizard or a knight. Through it, he could become a robot, one that created maps he used to protect himself. The robot also knew what was happening and what would happen next. It was quiet outside now by the pool. Sister Pamela was in the house below them calling his name. At any moment, she would decide to come upstairs. She would peer in the first room and not find him. He would hear her approaching, and when he looked up at her startled eyes and brown teeth, his hands, by a shared choice, would still be open on the curve of this woman's belly. But it wasn't Freddie's imagination to which Arlene spoke and which continued to fire with every passing moment of contact with her skin. She spoke instead to what his imagination guarded. It was lost in thoughts and feelings about mothers and babies and 
parlors and the dark brown face of Jesus and could only begin to make sense of them. That part of him, not yet grown, didn't know the answer to her question or to any questions that hid behind her question. And so it didn't know how to reply. It did know that this, what was happening, was a thing he might never forget. But for now, it could hardly speak. Thank you. That was Karen Pittman performing Jamel Brinkley's story, I Happy Am. While two stories can't give the full scope of everything the Plowshares Journal has accomplished, we hope it gives you a taste. And now you know you've got about 50 years of back issues to peruse. You're welcome. Also, there's plenty more selected shorts to explore. Find several recent shows as well as episodes of our spin-off podcast, Too Hot for Radio, at our website, selectedshorts.org. I'm Jane Curtin. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings were recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchett Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Neas Foundation, the Consolidated Edison Company of New York, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vita Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodsons Fund. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. <laughs>